You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Heavenly Father, we gather in your name right now. We ask that you would move by the power of your spirit. You have welcomed us into your presence by your spirit. We are in your presence right now. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would meet with us here, that you would speak to us here so clearly and so powerfully. God, I pray that you would have your way with us. I pray that you would speak and that we would hear as your servants, that we would hear as your sons and daughters, Lord. God, we need you. We long for you. We ask for your grace. We ask for your spirit to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, Give me wisdom. We're living in a world that's getting harder and harder to navigate. It's hard to know what to do in our family when we live in a world where the family is being redefined and recategorized. It's hard to uh, live in uh, right relationship as male and female when gender is being reevaluated and redefined. It's hard to manage our money where on a personal level and a governmental level there just seems to be this just spend and spend and spend. It's getting harder and harder to to find ways to live wisely in our world and it's been it's getting harder and harder to live according to the wisdom of God's word because the message that we're hearing all of the time is to is to uh, look within look within yourself to find the answer where the Bible tells us time and time again don't look within look up Look to him. We're also always being told about this is the new trend. This is the new way of doing things. So you need to look forward. But what we need to repeatedly be reminded of is that it's not about looking forward. It's about looking back. And we, we want to tap into not what will work for the next uh, month or, or the next year. We want to look at what has been working. What is the wisdom that God has laid down for centuries on, beyond, into all of eternity? So we're starting this new series today called Lord Give Me Wisdom. I don't think there's ever been a time, I don't think there's ever been a group of people living on planet earth than people who are living in the country that we're living in and in the time that we're living at right now. I don't think asking for wisdom from God has ever been more important than it is right now. So much is changing in our world. So much is happening all around us. So much is happening in our own lives. So much is happening for us here as a church. That we need wisdom. And listen, we don't have it. And we've got to be asking God for it. We're launching into our week of prayer this week. We have prayer nights happening Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Every night from 7.30 to 9, we're going to be gathering together and asking this. Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, would you give us wisdom in our own personal lives? Would you give us wisdom in our finances? Would you give our church leaders wisdom? Would you, would you give our families wisdom? Seeking God's face for the wisdom that we so desperately need. 
So by means of introduction to the book of Proverbs and to this series, we're going to be looking at this question. What does it mean? What would it look like for us to really ask God for some wisdom? We're going to, we're going to have to look at ourselves first. Then we're going to look at wisdom, and we're going to end up by looking at God. Here's the first thing that I want you to write down right out of the gate. That asking God for wisdom means we must humble ourselves. It means we must humble ourselves. Some of you probably already opened up your Bible to Proverbs chapter 1. Let's get our Bibles in our hands. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle for people who left theirs at home today, so they have a chance to follow along. But... Although the series is in Proverbs, that is not where we're going to start. I want to ask you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 1. That's just a little bit to the left. So um, if you're in Proverbs, go past Psalms, past Job, uh, Ezra, and uh, Nehemiah, and then you get into the books of Chronicles. Find 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 7. We're looking at this idea that in order to ask God for wisdom, the first step is to humble ourselves. If we aren't humble before God, then we won't ask him for wisdom. Second Chronicles chapter 1 verse 7 says, in that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Just imagine, imagine that God appeared to you and said, ask what I will give you. Imagine God writing you a blank check and this one-time offer where you could make a request before God. You could write it down in the connection card if you want. You could get down on your knees and pray it, that you had one opportunity to make a request before God and it was guaranteed that it would be answered. What would you ask for? Would you ask for stronger, more healthy relationships? Would you ask for more stability or wealth in your finances? Would you ask for your, your health to improve? Would you ask for, for that estranged relationship to be restored? What, what, is, what are you longing for in your heart? So 2 Chronicles chapter 1, how would you, how would you respond to that question? Take a look at the way that Solomon answered in verse 10. He says, give me now wisdom. Could have asked for anything, but what he wanted was wisdom. And look at the, look at the humility in what he says. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to come in before this people for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great. Solomon looks at the task that was in front of him. He was a young king trying to fill the shoes of King David, his father. And he had the humility to say, I can't do this. And wisdom begins in our life. And we will start to ask God for wisdom when we start saying more often and believing in our heart, I can't do this. I don't, even know where to, I don't even know where to start. I can't wrap my head around this issue. That's where asking for wisdom begins. It starts with humility. And God answered that prayer for Solomon. And because God answered that prayer for Solomon, Solomon became the wisest man on planet earth. It says that he, he had many sayings. He had 3,000 proverbs that he had written. And because God gave Solomon in his humility wisdom, we have this treasure of wisdom found in the book of Proverbs. So I want to ask you to turn there now. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 1. Asking God for wisdom means we must 
humble ourselves. The book of Proverbs begins like this. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The book is called The Proverbs of Solomon. That's the, that's the title. Let's get a definition of, of a proverb on the screen here for us so that we can work through this through the course of this series. A proverb is a short saying that is memorable, practical, and universal. And so the book of Proverbs contains many short sayings that are memorable, practical, and universal. Now, the whole book of Proverbs is not filled with Proverbs. In fact, the first nine chapters have very few Proverbs in it. They're longer passages, uh, narratives. There's, there's dialogue, there's monologue, there's speaking back and forth, fathers speaking to sons, wisdom speaking to the world. And so the whole book of Proverbs is not filled with these short statements, but the bulk of the book, is, what the book is most widely known for, are these memorable practical and universal statements. We have them in our world all the time, right? Uh, measure twice, cut once. That, that's a, a carpentry proverb that once you cut that piece of wood, it, it, it's cut unless you PL premium it back together, but that's going to look ugly. So you better make sure that you measure it twice, that you know where you're cutting because you can measure as many times as you want, but you can only cut once. Or a stitch in time saves nine, that if you recognize a small hole in your garment, it's better to stitch it up first than to have the hole grow and grow, and then you have to do nine stitches in order to uh, repair it. It's better to do the work, both of those Proverbs are saying, do the work ahead of time so that you don't, so that the result isn't a a, a mess or a catastrophe that you can't ultimately uh, correct. So that's a proverb. It's these short statements that really stick in your mind that apply not just in one situation, but they're universal. They they transcend generations. They transcend geography. They are universally applicable. But here's the thing. In the book of Proverbs, the word proverb only appears six times. See, the book of Proverbs is not really about Proverbs. It's not really just a collection of sayings. The book of Proverbs fundamentally is about what's described in verse 2. To know wisdom. Proverbs is a book about wisdom. When we come to the the book of Proverbs, we are not saying, Lord, give me Proverbs. Lord, give me these cute little sayings that I can remember. No, we are saying, Lord, give me wisdom. This is a book not just of sayings, but a book about wisdom. Wisdom. Here's a definition of, of wisdom for us in this series. Wisdom is the skill. It's a skill that can be developed, a skill of determining the best possible method to accomplish the best possible outcome. A wise person can look at a situation and determine, they have the skill, the ability to, to say, that is the best thing to do and this is the best way to do it. Another way to describe it is to do the right thing the right way for the right reasons. That's what wisdom is. 
You see, wisdom isn't just knowing a bunch of sayings or spitting out a bunch of proverbs. You see, the thing about proverbs is some proverbs apply in some situations and some proverbs don't apply in some situations. Sometimes they even put these two proverbs together. Like in one time it says, uh, answer, a fall, answer a fool according to his folly. And then right after it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Sometimes when you're dealing with someone who's being foolish, sometimes the right thing to do is to say nothing. Sometimes the right thing to do is to say something. What's the difference? They're both proverbs. They're both in the Bible. Wisdom. Developing that skill of knowing what the right thing to do is. What's the most loving thing that I can do for this fool or the people that they're harming by their foolishness? So the goal of the book is to know wisdom. Wisdom is described a number of ways. Notice how it's academic. Verse 2 has the word instruction. Verse 5, the word learning. It's also practical. Verse 5 has the word guidance. And verse 3 has the word wise dealing. It's also moral. Verse 3 talks about righteousness, justice, and equity. This is, what the, this is what the book of Proverbs is supposed to do. This is what these sayings are going to do. They're going to develop wisdom. It's going to stimulate your mind, but it's also ethical. And, and, and it's, it's, not just, it's not just theory. It's very, very practical. But look who wisdom is for in verse, um, in verse 4. It says, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. The book of Proverbs is not for people who think they're already wise. The book of Proverbs is geared at people who have the humility, remember, asking God for wisdom begins with us humbling ourselves. It it comes from the people who have the humility to admit that they are simple. Any simple people here? Hands up, don't be shy. If you're willing to admit that you're simple, then you are ready for the book of Proverbs. It also says that this book is intended for the youth. And we can be praying for our youth right now. They're up at a retreat. And one of the dangers of youth, and, and, and I remember this when I was a, a young person, is you go through this season. It's a, a, about a decade long, from about being 13 years old to about 23, where you live in this fog in which you think you are the smartest person on planet Earth. And then you're also in the midst of this fog, you think that your parental units are the most foolish people on planet Earth. And you sort of live, you, you and your parents kind of endure this for about a decade where you think you're smart and your parents are, are foolish. And then all of a sudden you sort of finish school and start living on your own. And then your parents move from being these foolish people to being your absolute heroes. Because you know that they have lived a little bit more life than you. And now you're, you're seeing the rubber hit the road a little bit. And so Proverbs is for the youth, for the youth to be reminded of the fact that we don't have all of the answers. And then I love, I love this last person, verse 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. True wisdom knows that it needs more wisdom. The wise person is wise by knowing that they need wisdom. But it is wise to ask God for wisdom. A Proverbs 9.9 says, Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. In contrast, Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. 
You see, we need to have the humility, whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you consider yourself simple or whether you consider yourself quite wise because you've lived a lot of life and you've applied some of these Proverbs in the past. Listen, everyone here is on equal footing when it comes to the book of Proverbs. We are all equally desperate for wisdom. The simple, the youth, the wise. Here's why, because humility and teachability go hand in hand. One of the signs of wisdom, one of the signs of true humility that leads to wisdom is a teachability. Teach me how to do this. Help me. Lord, I need you. And so how do we foster this in our lives? Two ways that we can foster this, particularly in our prayer life and also our, our, our general uh, interactions with other people. The first one is this. Acknowledge your limitations. Acknowledge your limitations. The wise person knows that they don't know everything. Even people with master's degrees or PhD degrees on certain subjects, the, the, the ones who, who can speak so clearly on a particular subject are the ones who freely admit that they don't know everything about that subject. There is wisdom in humbling yourself and knowing your own limitations. One of the ways that this plays out in our lives so often is when we assume that we know why someone is doing something. It is very foolish to assume that you know the reason behind the behavior of any other human being on planet Earth. Uh, Ray Kaprowski calls it a suicide. You commit a suicide. You get yourself into trouble where you see someone do something and then you, you know. You're wise in your own eyes and you know why they did that thing. Listen, that causes all kinds of trouble. I found in my own life, I barely understand why I do what I do let alone some other, some other person, whether I know them well or... Listen, so wisdom comes in day-to-day interactions with other people. Don't assume that you know why they're doing what they're doing. Recognize your limitations. Recognize that you don't have all the information. I joked a couple of, a couple of weeks ago that people who think they know how to put two and two together, who can f- read between the lines, when they put two and two together, they end up with 22 instead of four. And, and those wrong assumptions are so dangerous. So admit your limitations. And here's the second one. Admit your sinfulness. Admit your sinfulness. Even if we have all of the information needed, the sin dwelling inside us has a tendency to distort it and to twist it to work out for our selfish means. And, and, and so we need to be very self-suspicious about our own wisdom, thinking that, what, what, that we know what should happen because chances are what we think should happen is what turns out to be best for us and not best for other people or not bringing glory to God. So that, those are two ways that we can humble ourselves. And when we come to the book of Proverbs with, with humility, when we come admitting that we're simple or that we're young or that we are wise but still needing wisdom, then we're going to long for wisdom. We're going to treasure it. And that leads us into the second point that the book of Proverbs tells us again and again, that we must value wisdom. Solomon took a big risk in asking for Wisdom. There's a lot of other things that he could have asked, but listen, it shows that he valued it. This was the one thing that he wanted. Why? Because he knew. He could have asked for money. He could have asked for relationships. He could have asked for long life. He could have asked for all of that, but instead he asked for wisdom. Here's why. Because it's one thing to get money, but if you don't have wisdom, that money's not going to stay with you for very long. Or it's going to ruin you if it does. 
It's one thing to ask for relationships, but if you don't have wisdom on how to stop yourself from hurting other people or other people hurting you, it's going to be a train wreck. You see, wisdom gives us the ability to to have what is needed, the skills that are needed that overflow into all of the other areas of our life. So we must value wisdom. Now, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs have hardly any of these proverb short sentences. The, the first nine chapters of Proverbs is really, it's like an advertisement for how important, how valuable, how priceless wisdom really is. Now, take a look at chapter 4, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. I just love that. I love that. No fear of being repetitious. No, no fear of being too simple. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. Having that humility to admit that you, you don't have what you need to get through life to make the right kinds of decisions. This is how uh, the message paraphrase uh, paraphrases this verse. It says, above all and before all, do this. Get wisdom. Write this at the top of your list. Get understanding. You've got to be looking for it. You've got to search for it. Time and time again in Proverbs, it's called gold or silver or treasure, something that we need to be searching after because we value it. If you lose a paper clip, you don't stay up all night looking for it because you don't have there's no sense of value. You've got a box full of them in your, in your desk. You lose your child at the park. Everything stops. This is a regular occurrence for me. But I value my children. And I don't just go home and assume that they're going to make their way home. No, I stop everything until I can find them. Because I value them. And we need to value wisdom to get it, to long for it. To do whatever we can to get it. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13. Following on this idea of valuing wisdom. Verse 13 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain of her, wisdom is personified as a female throughout the book of Proverbs. For the, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. You want a worldly riches, you want to have financial stability and security, you want to be wealthy. Listen, wisdom is more valuable than any of that. She's more precious than jewels. And then I love this, verse 15. Nothing you desire can compare with her. There's nothing like having wisdom. There's no relationship like that compares with having wisdom. Because if you don't have wisdom in that relationship, that relationship is going to be a disaster. There's no financial wealth that's better than having wisdom because unless you have wisdom, that wealth will either run away or harm you and ruin your character. We need wisdom. It's more important than anything. Verse 16, long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Once you have wisdom, things flow out of it. Verse 17, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The author of Proverbs here very subtly takes us back to the Garden of Eden. 
and says that when you have wisdom, it's like a tree of life. And when you take hold of the tree of life, you are blessed. But what happened to Adam and Eve? They didn't take hold of the tree of life. They took hold of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Well, knowledge is just knowing things. Wisdom is how to, the skill of being able to apply that knowledge. So Adam and Eve chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And rather than getting the blessing that the tree of life gives, what do they, what do they end up getting? They got a curse. And this is interesting when you, when you really dissect and study what was going on in Eve's heart and mind as she's contemplating what the serpent was lying to her about. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, Adam and Eve wanted wisdom. And that's a good thing. Proverbs tells us that that we are supposed to long for wisdom. We're supposed to search for it. We're supposed to treasure it like gold. Adam and Eve wanted wisdom, but they wanted wisdom on their terms. They wanted wisdom apart from God. And this leads us into the third part of our message that's absolutely crucial. You can't have wisdom without fearing God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Of the Lord, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Adam and Eve embraced a curse by going after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to become wise, but not wise by relying on God all the time. They wanted to be in charge of their own lives. And that brought a curse, but the blessing comes not simply in turning towards wisdom, but turning towards God and the tree of life and doing things His way way. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you uh, look down at the next verse, you see the wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. We see evidence of God's wisdom, the way things work, in, in the creation all around us. The creation shows us that God is a wise God and that fearing Him is really the key of living with wisdom. God knows all about using the best possible methods to accomplish the best possible outcomes. God is called in the New Testament the only wise God. He is the source of all wisdom. But why why the fear of God? Why couldn't it just say, God is the beginning of wisdom. Why couldn't it say something you know, a, little, a little warmer, a little cozier, like the love of God or the, the grace of God? Why is it that it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? Listen, loved ones, it's important that we all have a healthy fear of God. It's important that as Christians that we Don't neglect in our Bible reading stories like Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 who went into the tabernacle and offered an unauthorized sacrifice and were struck down dead. We we 
we should tremble when we read about uh, Uzzah. And, and he, he's, he's transporting the Ark of the Covenant from one place to another on this kind of crude ox cart thing. And, and it, it starts to stumble. And a lot of things went wrong before this moment. But, but this moment kind of puts the fear of God in all of us. He reached out to try to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling over. And he was struck down dead. Well, Ted, I mean, that's, those are Old Testament stories, and we're in the New Covenant, and perfect love uh, casts out fear, and, well, Ananias and Sapphira lied about their finances, and they were struck down dead. In, in the region of, of Achaia, it's, re, it's recorded in 1 Corinthians 11, that because they were flippantly going about having communion... And remembering the, the body and blood of Christ and, and their symbolic unity as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 talks about Christians getting sick and dying. There's a sense in which we, we should have a fear of God. There's a sense in which we should, we should stand in, in awe of him, not just in his amazing love and his amazing creativity, but also, I want you to make note of this, that, that, that God is holy and that he's not to be a trifled with, that we, we are seeking wisdom from a holy God. And if we are going to live wisely, we have to be committed to living holy. I want to clarify uh, something that, that the fear of God, it really helps us. Fear can be useful. Fear is not all bad. Fear is what stops you from walking across Highway 410. The, the fear of cars moving at let's say 120 kilometers an hour, but it's often a lot faster than that. That, that fear keeps you from, you know, if you want to get from, you know, you're on Kennedy Road and you want to get over to Bramalee Road, you're, you're not going to walk across the highway because there's a healthy amount of fear. And what we're experiencing in our world and why we're seeing so much foolishness in our world and why there's such a need for wisdom in our world is we are living in a world where people... They have no fear anymore. There's no sense of, I will one day be accountable to God for my actions. Or really that I'll be accountable to anyone. I was just in between services. I was just talking to a, to a, to a school teacher. And they just see it in our children. They're not being taught to fear. They don't fear their teachers. They send me to the principal. Who cares? You're going to tell my parents? So What? There's no fear, and when there's no fear, there's no restraint. And that's why we're seeing so much of the immorality. That's why we're seeing so much temptation. That's why we're seeing so much permissiveness in our world today, because there is no fear. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've bought into this atheistic, secular, humanistic way of viewing the world, you need to understand... What is your reason for doing what you believe is right and not doing what's wrong? 
because there really is no foundation. There is no reason to do right or wrong. And I want to warn you as clearly but as lovingly as I can that one day you will have to stand before a holy God and give a moment by moment, word by word, action by action, thought by thought, account before that all-knowing God about everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, and everything you've ever thought. That should strike fear in you. But you should also know that God sent His Son Jesus Christ. Before we go to have accountability with him, Jesus came down to us and he lived a perfect life and he suffered and died on a cross for us, taking the penalty that all of us deserve so that you can live not with fear of God's condemnation and you can, fear, you can live without being afraid of God punishing you. And when the Christian talks about the fear of God, it's very different. You see, we're not afraid of condemnation. We're afraid of consequences. We, we know and love God, and we know when he tells us don't do this, he really means don't hurt yourself. And so we're, we're, we're not afraid of condemnation, we are afraid of, of consequences. And we're, we're not afraid of being punished because Jesus was punished instead of us. But we are, we are concerned about living a life that is pure and holy before God. I really wrestled with this this week, how how to best uh, explain this. And so I I really want to lean on the wisdom of some other uh, Christians who have now gone uh, to be with the Lord. And so I want to share with you a couple of paragraphs and one story to really hammer home this whole concept of the fear of God. You really can't reduce it to a sentence. And so this is how A.W. Tozer talks about living in a relationship, a loving relationship with God that also involves fear. Tozer says, how different and how utterly wonderful are the emotions aroused by a true and spirit-incited love for Christ. Such a love may rise to a degree of adoration almost beyond the power of the heart to endure. Yet at the same time, it will be serious, elevated, chaste, and reverent. Tozer goes on to say, Christ can never be known without a sense of awe and fear accompanying the knowledge. He's the fairest among 10,000, but he is also the Lord high and mighty. He is meek and lowly in heart, but he is also Lord and Christ, who will surely come to be the judge of all men. No one who knows him intimately can ever be flippant in his presence. That's the fear of God. That's having a healthy sense of awe, sense of respect before this amazing God who has invited us into a relationship with him. I want to read to you from uh, The Silver Chair, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And the part of the story that I'm going to read to you, it involves one of the main characters. Her name is Jill, and she's been transported uh, magically to this other world. And the, the person that she came with, uh, tried to save her life, ended up falling off of a cliff. And now she's all alone in the forest and she's dying of thirst. And she's scrambling around the woods, trying to find something to drink. And she hears the faint sound of a rushing stream. 
Lewis picks up the story and says, Sooner than she expected, she came upon an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved even if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will, will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing she had come one step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You see, all of us are going through life thirsty. All of us are going through life longing for the wisdom to be able to live the life we want to live. But there's no way to get that wisdom without God, without a healthy fear of God. And for the person who doesn't believe in Jesus or who isn't a Christian, just just as it's described for Jill, she had to do the worst thing she had ever done. She asked the lion to leave. Can I please have what you're offering without you being here? And there's that, you can't negotiate that way. You can't have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. You can't have wisdom apart from Jesus Christ. 
It all hinges upon a healthy fear of God. Aslan is, is there in all of his majesty, in all of his power, in all of his strength, and all of his fierceness. But at the same time, he is saying repeatedly, come and drink. I know you are thirsty. Come and drink. And so to understand the fear of God, we need to understand first and foremost that God is holy. But also make note of this, that God is generous. That God is generous. One of my favorite verses on the fear of God in the book of Proverbs, and there are many, is a Proverbs um, chapter 14, verse 27. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It's a fountain of life. He, when we fear God, it doesn't restrict our lives. It causes our lives to overflow. You see, God is a generous God. That's why this verse is so crucial for us, to, to come to this fountain, to know that God is ready to give to us, to come claiming promises like James 1.5 that says, does anyone lack wisdom? Hopefully we all have the humility now to admit that we do. Does anyone lack wisdom? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. How can a holy God be so generous? How can he give us wisdom even though we're so undeserving? I mean, he gave Solomon the wisdom, but look what Solomon ended up doing with it. If you read the end of Solomon's life, it was, it was a nightmare. Solomon couldn't even apply the wisdom that he, that he was given by God. But God gave Solomon wisdom. And why, why can we be so sure that if we approach the stream that the lion won't devour us? How can we be so sure that the lion wants to give us life-giving water? Here's why we can be sure. Because when Jesus walked on the earth, he said this very frankly in Matthew 12, verse 42. He said, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus said that I've come to this world with a wisdom, with a wisdom that I didn't have to ask for. Solomon was wise, he asked God for it, but I am wise because I am God. Something greater than Solomon. God gave Solomon wisdom. God gave us his church. He gave his son. He gave us his son. The reason why we can be so confident that God will give us wisdom when we ask him is because God has already given us his son. He's given us his son. And the cross and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the perfect summary of the best possible method to accomplish the best possible outcome. Jesus came to die on the cross. He came and he lived the right way and he lived for the right reasons and he always did the right thing and he suffered and died for us even though we always do the wrong thing for the wrong motive in the wrong way this is the god that we serve he is holy but he is generous we must humble ourselves we must value wisdom and we must fear god let's pray together Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not only mentally receive these truths from your word today, 
I pray that we would not even merely uh, um, emotionally respond to the themes that have been described. But God, I pray that in our heart of hearts, that we would see our, a need for humility to grow in our lives. And that we would see how valuable the wisdom is that you offer us. And God, and that we would, that we would love you, but that we would also fear you. That we would see you as holy and as generous, as merciful and as severe. And Lord, words can't do that. And a man can't cause a group of people to experience that or to believe that. Only your spirit can do that. And so God, I, I pray that you would even do the work in our own hearts that would get us in the right place this week to cry out to you for wisdom. And so we invite you to do what only you can do and we, we just ask God that you would do it. We delight to acknowledge that we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.